Hello and welcome to Fabula Celtica, a Celtic Studies podcast with Tyler Baxter and Kevin Collins. Series 1, Ancient Ireland, Episode 3, Bronze and Iron. We are continuing our series about ancient Ireland, where we're talking about both the mythology and the history of Ireland from its earliest inhabitants kind of into the early medieval period. Um, And uh, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, I do suggest you go back. These episodes sort of stack and do depend on one another. Um, So uh, we would love to have you uh, take a look at those. Today, we're going to be talking to you about the Bronze and Iron Age. Indeed, we are, Kevin. And uh, as before, I'm going to start us off with a little story. Um, and we're going to be returning to the Lever Gavala, the Book of the Takings of Ireland, today, and uh, looking at the third taking to start with. So here's a little extract from that taking. Uh, and again, this is from McAllister's translation. Uh, in his Lever Gavala, uh, Volume 3. Now Ireland was waste thereafter, for a space of thirty years after Partholone, till Nevith of the Greeks of Scythia came thither with his four chieftains. Forty-four ships had he on the Caspian Sea for a year and a half, but his ship alone reached Ireland. These are the four chieftains, Starn, Yarvanel the Soothsayer, Annan, and Fergus Redside, they were the four sons of Nevith. It is Nevith who won the battle of Eosfraken against Gon and Sengen, two kings of the Fovera, and the twain were slain there. Two royal forts were dug by Nevith in Ireland, Rathkimbeth in Semna, Rathkindech in Enilin. The four sons of Matin Munramur dug Rathkindech in one day. They were slain before the morrow in Deraliga by Nevith, lest they should improve upon the digging. End quote. As we had uh, with the takings of Kesser. And... I was going to say, we almost had a bit of a rhyming scheme there. <laughs> we did almost, yeah. And uh, I. I, I... Probably in the Irish, there was actually some or some rhythmic uh, aspect to it. Uh, I could I could look that up, but um, I'm not going to right now. Um, Why put yourself out? <laughs> well, well, I, I will give you some uh, some samplings of the old Irish uh, uh, verse uh, a little later. Uh, not this episode, but uh, an episode or two out. The uh, the ships that didn't make it, I assume they all met uh, a great demise. Yes, yes. I think the implication is that they were all sunk at sea. Um, and actually, uh, in the earlier takings, but we didn't bring it up, um, if I remember correctly, there were also different ships that accompanied these leaders that did not make it there. So again, we have a repeating motif you of ha- sort of a, a subset of with, uh, make it Thailand. Of death. Yeah. Um, you, your, your expertise also into Welsh uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. Does the streak of death I mean, is that in that as well? <laughs> um, well, uh, we, we find death just about everywhere, Kevin, um, though in, in differing quantities. Um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk about the Welsh uh, mythology uh, in, in the future. Um, we will bring it in uh, a little bit when we talk about uh, the gods of Ireland kind of generally and make some comparisons to uh, other Celtic figures uh, in other parts of Europe. Um, but uh, that's that's going to be a little ways out. 
Um, for now, uh, we'll we'll focus on the survivors of this expedition. Um, who, uh, as before, we have sort of the whole name of the expedition is after its leader. Uh, in this case, Nevith. Um, and uh, he, his four sons are also taking uh, precedence here, sort of his, his sub-leaders. Um, and how's Neveth spelled? Uh, yeah, it's uh, N-E-M-E-D. So uh, those who, who haven't uh, taken up Old Irish would probably pronounce it Nemid. Um, but uh, uh, the, the M and D are in fact going to be lenited uh, to Neveth. In any case, we're, we're going to see this, this word again later. Actually, it becomes a generic term uh for the noble class during the the middle ages which includes your kings um your uh clergymen uh your lords and your poets um interestingly enough so uh we'll we'll see this this as a a general term later but for now it's it's a character as we saw when in the second taking by partholone uh shortly after uh arriving in ireland uh, Neveth's people encounter the Fovera, uh, this this strange... The one-legged, one-armed... Yeah, they, they're described that way in the Parthalon story, but they're not given any sort of definite description in the Neveth tale. So um, it's hard to say, again, whether they're monstrous creatures or whether they're just other people um, or, or something along the lines of, of a fairy sort of creature, perhaps a humanoid, but not truly human, something more magical. Um, in any case, uh, uh, as a reminder uh, to listeners, um, if you have not listened uh, to our, our previous episodes recently, um, the Fovera are pretty much always described as coming from the sea in some fashion, perhaps from under the sea, perhaps from across the sea. Um, they're sort of raiders uh, that come to Ireland. Uh, but Nevis people managed to, to beat the Fovra, they managed to slay these two Fovra leaders. Uh, and then uh, they put to work um, some of the captured Fovra and have them dig what they're calling royal forts. Um, so essentially, the, they're going to be similar to, a, say, a hill fort, perhaps uh, an earthen-based structure um, with a large sort of ditch around it uh, and a nice built-up mound um, for, for defensive purposes. So we get uh, Neved's arrival. They, they managed to deal with this uh, Fovra incursion. Um, and really interestingly, just to return to that quote uh, from the very end, uh, they were slain before the morrow, lest they should improve upon the digging. So there seems to be some sort of concern that the people who have been enlisted, the, the, the captured Fovra who have been enlisted to dig these, these forts, uh, they, they can't quite get to perfection for some reason. I, I don't really have a good explanation for this, um, except for perhaps it having to do something with the payment they would be owed. Um, How would they have been paid in this era? Well, theoretically, they shouldn't have to be paid at all if they're captured, um, uh, which would basically mean they have no status. Um, we have to remember that this story is being written by people during the medieval period, um, when there was a very definitive set of laws, oftentimes called Brehan law. Um, I'll usually just call it early Irish law. Um, but uh, if, if you're a, a, someone who's been captured in war, you don't have status unless you're given status by a lord or, or a king. And in that case, you're still very much dependent on them. Your status depends on your, your patron, essentially. Are, is it, are they different from slaves? 
I mean, they basically would be slaves is, is what it comes down to, um, unless uh, their, their patron specifically appoints them to a particular position, such as a, um, you know, a bodyguard or something like that. So it's a little strange that they feel a need to stop them from sort of totally completing their project. But I can make a parallel to Norse mythology. There is uh, a, a tale about the building of Asgard, which is the home of the, the Aesir, sort of the main pantheon of gods, um, you know, Odin, Thor, all those people. Um, and Loki, the, the trickster god, is the one who sort of instigates the, the building of the walls of Asgard uh, with the assistance of the, the main builder, who is a giant. Uh, and the giants are a, a separate group of people from the Aesir, uh, and they tend to be at odds with each other. Um, and Loki tricks the giant who is building this wall um, so that the giant fails to put in the very last brick. Uh, and because the giant fails to do this, uh, he has not fulfilled his contract, and therefore the um, Acer do not have to pay him. So there may be something sort of similar going on here, um, but it doesn't really fit in with the Irish law that the people who wrote this text would have been familiar with. So it's, it's a little strange. <clears throat> that cheeky Loki. Yes, very cheeky indeed. Um, Are you saying Marvel's source material is, <laughs> is really just all a retelling of this? Uh, well, certainly uh, the, the Loki and Thor aspects are um, retellings, uh, or <laughs> I should say adaptations perhaps, uh, from the Norse mythology, um, though, though many liberties are taken. Um, in any case... Uh, there was no Iron Man in in the Norse version. <laughs> no, no, we do get some uh, sort of autonom- automatons in like the Arthurian literature, uh, but that's that that would be a different series. Um, automatons being like synthetic creatures, or yes, yes, uh huh, yeah. You get like men that are made out of metal or bronze or whatever, uh, who like guard otherworldly castles and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, not not so much in the Irish, at least, that, that I've come across uh, yet. I wouldn't be surprised if there's something out there somewhere. During uh, Neveth's uh, taking of, of Ireland, uh, a similar thing happens to what happened during Partholon's uh, taking, where the Nemedians uh, shape the land. They, they clear more plains, there are more lake bursts, so sort of spontaneous eruptions of lakes on the land. Um, and then, just like Partholon... Neveth and a lot of his people, not all of them, but a lot of them, die of plague. Uh-huh. Yay. <laughs> More death. Uh, gotta love it. Um, but not all of them die. It serves to keep the story succinct anyway, so you don't have too many tertiary characters that you need to worry about. Right, right, yes. You also um, wouldn't want to be like falling in love with, with, <laughs> with some character for him to meet, or her to meet their, their brutal demise. Indeed, uh, yeah, Neveth himself uh, uh, perishes, so we, we lose our titular character. But um, the, the Fovera uh, apparently are still around, and they take advantage of this sort of sudden weakening of the, the people of Neveth, uh, and they rise up. And this time it is they who enslave Neveth's people. Um, and they basically force them to pay, pay crippling taxes. Um, so I'm going to read another extract not from... Too, not too different from today. <laughs> yes, yes, very, very much indeed. So again, quoting from McAllister, just a little bit of the text here. Quote, There was a great oppression upon the children of Neveth at the hands of the Fovera at that time, after the death of Neveth namely at the hands of Mora, son of Delith, and of Conniv, son of Favor, from whom is Conan's tower named, 
against Ireland northwest. There the great fleet of the Fovra was lifting the tribute of Ireland. Now this was the tribute, two-thirds of the progeny, the corn, and the milk of the men of Ireland to be conveyed to them on Ervi Samhain night. End quote. The um, Fovra basically in now having apparently superior force thanks to this plague that wiped out a large number of the Numidians. Um, they say, okay, now we're going to force you to do uh, what we want, and it's to give up two-thirds of your children, uh, not to mention uh, all these other things, corn. Corn being a general word for grains. Uh, it's not going to be corn like the corn that's native to America. Um, so this would be, you know, wheat and oats and so on. Um, two-thirds of their milk, um, and then uh, specifically to be given to them on Samhain, um, or Sawin would be the more old Irish uh, pronunciation, um, which... Still being Halloween. Yes, modern-day Halloween. Um, so uh, to, to be precise, um, I'll, I'll use the old Irish pronunciation because, again, that's what I'm more used to, but Sawin uh, would have been um, celebrated actually from the sundown, I guess, the dusk of the 31st into um, uh, the morning of November 1st, uh, because in the, the old Celtic calendar, um, the day actually started at sundown, not sunrise. So we get Halloween um, being a very sort of night-based tradition as, as a result of this. Um, Yes, so for those of you listening who didn't know, Halloween is an Irish-based holiday originally. And we'll, we'll talk more about uh, Samhain, Samhain, and um, the other, um, what are known as the cross-quarter days, sort of the Celtic feast days uh, in the future. But uh, the thing to note for now is that it's generally um, considered to be a time where sort of the supernatural and the material world are very close together and in overlap and anything can happen. We have this very heavy tax and then uh, McAllister goes on to say, quote, wrath and vexation took hold of the men of Ireland for the heaviness of the tax and so the men of Ireland went to fight against the Fovra. There were three warriors whom they brought up with them. Sevion, son of Gervonal, the soothsayer, son of Nevith, and Erglin, son of Beowin, son of Starn, son of Nevith, and Fergus Redside, son of Nevith. 30,000 on sea and 30,000 on land, that was the tally of the host. And they captured the tower, and Conan and his family fell at their hands. But after the capture, Moray, son of Delith, appeared with the manpower of three score ships so that a joint slaughter with the Fovra and the children of Nevith fell on the shore. Everyone who was not slain was drowned, for they perceived not the sea coming over them, and none fled from the other, so strenuous was the fight and the battle. In the end, only one ship escaped, in which were thirty warriors. They went away from Ireland, fleeing from the sickness and the tax. End quote. After this, this tax is imposed, um, the Numidians rise up, and apparently there's 30,000 of them, so they've, they've definitely done some population um, since, since their arrival. Some, some decades have probably passed. Indeed, some of the people who are, are listed as these warriors are um, not only grandsons, but great-grandsons of Nevith himself, uh, including one of his sons, who must be rather old at this point, one would think. 
the, the tax that's being imposed here is the 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 two thirds of their yes everything. yes the, the the tax imposed by the Fovra. So they they rise up against the tax, um, and they manage to take this this tower where they've been asked to to bring the tax every year, um, but uh, the Fovra manage to get some some ships in with with more men, and they have pretty equal numbers, and they they just pretty much do away with each other, uh, and there's only this one ship of thirty men from Neveth, uh, uh, the Nemedian side that manages to, to get away and flee from Ireland. So like before, we do have survivors, but this time they don't stick around. Um, and uh, this time, the the final uh, thing that drives them away is um, warfare, not uh, plague or, or natural disaster. Where do they flee to? So uh, when Neveth's people fled, they, they split off into two groups. One group went to Greece, and the other group went to somewhere in the north. Uh, and exactly where is a little unclear. Um, the the Neveth text makes it sound like they kind of go through Scotland and maybe up into Scandinavia. Um, but then later in the text, when we get to the fifth taking, um, that sort of second split-off group, the ones who don't go to Greece, come from what are just kind of generically called islands in the north. So these could be the Hebrides, um, these could be, uh, this could be like Iceland, for instance, um, or it could be some sort of mythological islands. We are given names of the islands, but they definitely don't correspond to any um, place names that, that we know. They sound quite fantastical. So uh, in, in any case, um, the fourth taking of Ireland uh, is by the descendants of Neville who traveled to Greece. And um, we're told that uh, they don't have the best time in Greece. Um, they, they do kind of live to, to future generations and they grow more populous, but uh, the, the native Greeks eventually um, enslave them or, or at least force them into uh, labor they're not too, too pleased about. And um, fear bullig uh, literally means something like bag men. Uh, and the text tries to explain why they have this name. Uh, and so here's, here's an extract that uh, is one possible explanation for why they are called this. Quote, As for Seveon, he went into the lands of the Greeks. His progeny increased there till they amounted to thousands. Servitude was imposed upon them by the Greeks, carrying of soil onto bare rocks, so they were all plains under clover flowers. Sad and vexed were they at the servitude, and they came in flight, 5,000 upon the sea, and made them barks and ships of their bags, end quote. Um, so basically, the um, native Greeks say, hey, you several de- generations out foreigners, uh, go put soil on this barren land so that things will grow on it. Uh, and they would have carried the soil in, in these bags. McAllister actually translates um, soil as um, um, clay, which didn't really make sense to me. And the, the word that's used in the Old Irish is um, ur, uh, which just means, can mean clay, but it also can just mean earth. So I went with soil. Then uh, it, it says that they decide they don't like this labor, so they're going to build their own boats and they're going to return to Ireland and they use their bags that they carried the soil in to make the boat somehow. Um, so perhaps the, the idea is that they're building something like a coracle, um, which is a traditional Irish boat um, where the, the hull is, um, it uses a leather um, sort of skin. Um, 
And so perhaps that's that's what they're trying to depict here. The text goes on to say, quote, or they were called Firbolag because they obtained a noisome territory in Greece from the king of the Greeks, full of venomous reptiles, and the protection against the reptiles which they made was to carry with them clay of Ireland in bags, so that they were the Firbolag from the bags of earth which they carried with them in their canoes. Mm. End quote. This is in some ways similar uh, in that they're named for these bags of earth that they're carrying, but in other ways totally opposite because the earth they're carrying isn't Greek soil, it's Irish soil. And uh, I guess on account of Ireland not having poisonous reptiles, therefore logically Irish soil repels poisonous reptiles. Uh, checks out by medieval thought. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, by the way, uh, just to you know, spoil everyone's fun. The whole story of St. Patrick uh, expelling st- snakes from Ireland, first of all, obviously doesn't work with this because they're, they're basically saying before Christians came, there weren't any snakes anyways. Um, it doesn't work out uh, in terms of actual uh, real history of Ireland's biodiversity. They just were never here. And thirdly, that story is actually a very late um, addition to the St. Patrick tradition. It's, it comes in around 1600, if I remember correctly. With, do you know where there ever snakes here? I mean, there are snakes in England, so there's precedent that they live in this climate. Um, no, I think they, they, there haven't been, uh, at least not, not that um, archaeology has, has um, uncovered. Uh, probably snake skeletons wouldn't survive terribly well for thousands of years, so perhaps in prehistory. Um, but uh, no, not not in not from what we know. It seems that they never made it all the way to the island. Um, of course, there are people with pet snakes today, um, but uh, no, nothing nothing that's ever lived here as a as a wild species. Um, so, in in any case, uh, the what the text is doing is it's sort of um, giving an explanation about what it thinks bullig uh, bag means in this context. Um, but it's quite possible that the word had different connotations when it was originally coined, um, which is quite likely, as I mentioned before, a good while before the text was actually written down. Um, and one theory that I particularly like about the actual meaning of the word bullig is um, that it has to do with um, the idea of the fear bullig kind of swelling with a sort of berserker um frenzy when they go into battle so this idea of swelling is something that a, a bag or a bladder or a blister would do and bullig can mean any of those words in in any case um the fear bullig uh flee greece uh they they come to ireland um to where uh Nevid, their their ancestor um had originally come in the third taking and so they have a fourth people to come to ireland uh, and their their main contribution um, to sort of the ideas of future society in Ireland is that they are supposedly the first ones to bring the idea of kingship into Ireland. Um, but their succession uh, of kingship um, strategy is is a little um, morally problematic, um, especially from the perspective of the medieval Irish people. Uh, their whole strategy for going through different kings is through kin slaying. Uh, so, you know, your brother goes up and takes the kingship and then you decide, you know what, I'd actually rather like the kingship and you go kill him and now you're king. Um, and uh, as we'll see later uh, when we talk more about early Irish law, kin slaying is 
one of the biggest taboos in early Irish society um, because of how uh, important uh, your family was uh, and because of how so much of the law hinged upon your family sort of being in your corner and supporting your position um, when either you do a crime or some, or uh, you're you're the victim of a crime, that sort of thing. Even today, it's taboo to kill your brother or sister. Strangely enough, um, oh, goodness it, knows. Was it always to be slain? Um, was there ever any element of craftiness? You know, poison accidents can happen. The the lever gavelet itself is is quite a. Um, uh, a sweeping text in terms of how it presents things. It doesn't get into too much detail most of the time. So a lot of that sort of detail we just don't have recorded in this text specifically. Um, and it's it's purely a matter of guesswork or our own imaginations. Death being the, the ultimate outcome. So, <laughs> so 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 we'll assume that it was slayed. And when I when I imagine slaying it's like with a sword in, in... That that's my that's my perspective, yeah. And um the Fifth taking of Ireland, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the Fear Bullig because they are, are fairly quickly um, uh, encounter the, the fifth takers uh, who are the Tua de Donan or the Tuatha de Donan in the old Irish pronunciation, um, who we brought up in our last episode. Um, so the, the name again translates as something like the tribe of the goddess Danu or the people of the goddess Danu. And... Um, these are the other branch of the sort of descendants of the people of Neviv who fled to the north rather than to Greece. And uh, so we're, we're told that the Tuatha de Danann also decide to come back to Ireland um, after the Fear Bolg have arrived. And we're told that they trained in sorcery in the north, wherever this north is. They're described as arriving to Ireland in dark clouds. And sort of depending on the version of the tale, um, there's there's several stories that describe the arrival of the Tuatha de Danann. There's the Lever Gavla, but as I mentioned in our first episode, the Lever Gavla has different recensions or different versions. Um, there's the uh, the first battle of Mokturith, is a, a separate text that describes their arrival. Um, and some of them say these are sort of magical clouds of mist. Some of them say that they are uh, just fog and smoke because they burn their ships once they arrive because they want no turning back. They're like, we're here to stay. Wow. That's um, quite a one-way <laughs> one ticket. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so, so it could be magical clouds. It could be even that they were in flying ships. It, it really depends on the version and how you interpret that version. Um, but it's, it's a regular description of their arrival. Um, and uh, when they arrive, or they, they meet with the Fear Bolig and they ask for half the island. Like, hey, you know, turns out we share some ancestry. Um, you guys look like you don't need this whole island to yourselves. So why don't you just give us half and we'll live and coexist together in peace? Imagine the Fear, the fear <laughs> Bolig didn't take too kindly to this request. Well, pretty much. Basically, the... Um, the ambassador of the Fear Bullock who met with the, um, the member of the Tuatha Day uh, who, who came and gave this proposal uh, initially thinks, yeah, that sounds fine to me, but let me check with my, my people. Uh, and so he goes back to the Fear Bullock leaders and they basically say the equivalent of give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If we give them half now, they're going to take the whole thing. 
So they decide, no, we're, we're going to go to war instead. Um, but this war has uh, quite a bit of lead up to it, uh, especially if we look at, if we shift our textual source to the text known as the First Battle of Mokturith, which gives the um, confrontation between the Volig and the Tuatha de Danann in a lot more detail. Um, so uh, Fraser has has translated the first battle of uh, it's, he says the first battle of Moitura, which is the um, sort of anglicization of Magtarith, um, in uh, Eru Volume Eight, back in 1915. Uh, it's quite a long text. Uh, he's he's takes up the first 63 pages of that journal, um, but uh, I'm going to read just a small bit that I think is particularly interesting and is going to tie into our discussion of the history, um, the Bronze Age uh, in particular, um, in just a little while. This quoting Fraser, uh, we have the ambassador of the Tuatha de Danann, who is named as Bresh, son of Elitha, and we have the ambassador of the um, the Fyrbolig, who is named as Shreng, or Shreng, uh, and this is their, their conversation. So, quote, Remove your shield from before your body and face, said Bresh, that I may be able to give the Tuatha Day an account of your appearance. I will do so, said Shrang, for it was for fear of that sharp spear you carry that I placed my shield between us. Then he raised his shield. Strange and venomous, said Bresh, are those spears. If the weapon of all of you resembles them, show me your weapons. I will, said Shrang. And he thereupon unfastened and uncovered his thick-shafted javelins. What do you think of these weapons, he said. I see, said Bresh, huge weapons, broad-pointed, stout and heavy, mighty and keen-edged. Woe to him whom they should smite. Woe to him at whom they shall be flung, against whom they shall be cast. They will be instruments of oppression. Death is in their mighty blows, destruction in one descent of them. Wounds are their hard-plying, overwhelming is, their, is the horror of them. What do you call them, said Bresh. Battle javelins are these, said Shang. They are good weapons, said Bresh. Bruised bodies, they mean, gushing gore, broken bones and shattered shields, sure scars and present plague. Death and eternal, internal blemish they deal, sharp foe alike, and deadly are your weapons. And there is fury for fratricide in the hearts of the hosts whose weapons they are. Let us make a compact and covenant. They did so. Each came nigh to the other, and Bresh asked, Where did you spend last night, Shring? At the hollowed heart of Ireland, in the wrath of the kings of Tara. Where are the kings and princes of the fear Bullig? And Yaketh, high king of Ireland. And you, whence come you? From the hill, from the crowded capacious camp yonder on the mountain slope, where are the Tuathaday and, and Nuitha, their king who came from the north of the world in a cloud of mist and a magic shower to Ireland in the land of the west. It was Shrang said, I have a long journey, and it is time for me to go. Go then, said Bresh, and here is one of the two spears I brought with me. Take it as a specimen of the weapons of the Tuatha Day. Shrang gave one of his javelins to Bresh as a specimen of the weapons of the Fear Bullig. Tell the Fear Bullig, said Bresh, that they must give my people either battle or half of Ireland. On my word, said Shrang, I shall prefer to give you half of Ireland than to face your weapons. They parted in peace after making a compact of friendship with each other." End quote. So that's uh, just two paragraphs of the 63-page uh, document that Fraser has translated. Um, 
but uh, we have this very sort of um, tactful, I would say, exchange between these these uh, opposing parties, and they actually give each other their weapons so that they know what technology the other group is wielding. And then um, I did not quote this part. But uh, after this, they give a, a fairly long amount of preparation time, and they agree to meet at a specific time in a specific place to have their battle. And who was the victor? Well, um, given that uh, the lever Gavala goes through the cycles of invasions, it is the Tuatha de Danann, the fifth uh, group, who eventually must take Ireland, uh, since we're going from one to the next. So the Fear Bullock do end up losing this battle, and we're told that they sort of scatter to different islands, either around Ireland or into Scotland. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, in later tales, uh, there are sort of minor characters who show up who are described as Fear Bullock, um, and oftentimes they seem subservient to Tuatha Day characters. Interesting, the, the tactful conversation Yes, uh, it's, it's uh, something that I think ties in well with what we're going to talk about because what they're seeing by looking at each other's weapons and exchanging weapons is they're exchanging technology and information about technology. And the key marker of the transition from the Neolithic, which we were talking about last episode, into the Bronze Age is an evolution of technology, appropriately enough. To kind of go back to the idea of different archaeological periods and kind of putting us on, on the timeline exactly where we are in uh, Ireland is sort of a transition into the Bronze Age from the Neolithic. There is sort of a, a smaller sub-period known as the Beaker Culture that comes in around 2500 BCE and is gone by about 1800. And um, the Beaker Culture is uh, marked mostly by use of ceramics and uh, the beginnings of working with gold to create very elaborate ornaments, the beginning use of, of copper as well. Uh, while the Bronze Age, uh, which begins around the year 2000, there's sort of some overlap between beaker and bronze before it's fully transitioned over um, and then goes until about 750 BCE. Um, that is marked by the evolution of weaponry um, the introduction of horses, which had not been into Ireland until that point, and the introduction of hill forts, uh, which are still a distinctive archaeological feature in the landscape today. Um, we'll also be getting into the sort of beginning of the Iron Age and some of the major um, features of that period. And so that starts um, roughly around the year 600 uh, BCE and goes into about 400 CE. So we, we finally get into the common era. Um, and one of the most important features of that time uh, in terms of the physical landscape is the establishment of what are known as the royal sites, which includes places like the Hill of Tara. Uh, and another is the arrival of Celtic languages. Um, the Hill of Tara being where the High King sat, allegedly? Allegedly, yes. Um, and, and we'll discuss the High Kingship of Tara uh, in, in the fairly near future, actually. Um, I think two or three episodes out. But um, the idea of High Kingship is one that definitely is historically not very accurate. Uh, there was never a single king who managed to uh, gain control of the whole of Ireland uh, in the medieval period. Um, but uh, there is a lot of legendary precedent for it, and there is a lot of um, symbolism and uh, many motifs that are repeated 
uh, that really highlight Tara's importance. Moving into some of the history now, we'll, we'll start with the beaker culture. And uh, this is um, most defined by, uh, as I mentioned before, some very distinctive ceramics uh, that are used. Very strangely, uh, ceramics are actually sort of totally done away with in the transition to the Bronze Age. People just stop using them, um, which seems a little surprising since they're relatively easy to, to, to make and quite useful things. Um, but uh, Ireland has some, some weird stuff like that. For... Was there a, an abundance of bronze to say that all of a sudden all of the Delphi could be, you know, bronze plates? <laughs> well, bronze yeah, yeah, pretty much. That, that's more or less what happens as far as, as useful vessels. Uh, they transition to, to bronze and other metals. Um, but uh, um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, similar mystery that I don't know if I'll have a chance to bring up elsewhere. Uh, so I'll just bring it up now, is that though the bow and arrow was introduced to Ireland uh, at one point, I don't remember exactly when, um, it fell out of use very quickly, uh, despite it being an extremely useful and extremely um, practical uh, weapon uh, or even just a tool for hunting. Um, people just didn't use it for very long in Ireland. I guess it wasn't manly enough. Um, so, so there's some very sort of idiosyncratic things that, that happened what, uh, what, in terms what, of tech. What took its place? Um, I mean, it was mostly, uh, you know, javelins and that sort of thing. Um, much, much less uh, range-based weaponry. Um, in any case, uh, we have um, examples from the, uh, the Beaker period that uh, include some really beautiful um, gold ornaments um, this is when we get the very uh, distinctive and uniquely Irish uh, ornament called a lunala, um, which is sort of, as its name kind of sounds, it's sort of a crescent moon-shaped um, neck uh, ornament that's, that's sort of very flat um, and, and broad in the center and then kind of thins out as it goes to where it would go around the neck um, and, and kind of comes to, to points. Large um, enough to fit over the head, because I assume it's not malleable to adjust. Uh, well, gold is actually super malleable uh, if it's if it's you know pure enough. Um, so I, I think it could go either way. Um, uh, there are some examples of these uh, in the National Museum um, of Ireland in Dublin uh, that are well worth checking out if you're ever visiting, uh, and uh, I'm sure you can you can find some of them on their website as well. Um, similarly, another neck ornament that, that uh, comes around is the, the torque, um, which is kind of a, a pan-Celtic uh, ornamentation, um, it seems. So this would be kind of like the modern-day choker, I guess. It's, a, it's a, something that would be very, worn very close around the neck. It would have a clasp. Um, and we get, for example, ribbon torques, which are sort of made by a, a thin strip of gold that then is twisted um, into, into a... a this lovely sort of spiraling ribbon shape. I can't imagine it was terribly comfortable to wear, but it would look very nice. Um, one of the most interesting artifacts that have been recovered from uh, the Beaker period is known as the Largan Canoe. Uh, and this is a 50-foot-long canoe that was um, found uh, carved from a single oak tree, and it was, was retrieved from a bog, um, the, the wonderful thing about Irish bogs is they just preserve so much for us. Wow. 
this is also um, on display in the uh, National Museum of Ireland. And um, it, uh, uh, one of my students actually brought this to my attention, um, that the size of the tree that was used um, to carve out this canoe uh, is so large that it's not even possible for an oak tree to grow that large in the current climate. So the fact that this particular um, tree was was big enough to do this uh, indicates some amount of climate change after the bronze period to the present day um, where oak trees can no longer grow to that same size. How long how how long did you say that was 50 50 feet feet wow yep yep uh, moving into the the bronze age proper um, we see again the very strange abandonment of ceramics um, but the tradition of fine gold work that the beaker culture began continues um, we see closer contact with uh, Britain and the continent evidenced by by trade artifacts that, that are cl- fairly clearly from Britain coming into Ireland and vice versa. Um, We see the introduction of horses and in the late Bronze Age of hill forts. Um, And uh, we see the depositing of precious objects, such as those gold ornaments, um, into uh, deep places, uh, especially water, sometimes bogs, um, sometimes something that used to be water that became a bog. and uh, this is where we get a lot of the, the precious artifacts that are now on display in, in various museums uh, across Ireland. Um, so, for example, there's this very famously the um, uh, Rotter Hoard or Brogater Cord, something like that, um, which uh, includes uh, some very elaborate um, ornaments such as a, a torque with some lovely designs on it. Um, there's a, a golden uh, miniature boat with with little oars and sails. Um, oh, just for above the mantelpiece. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. Or you know, um, maybe maybe it has a, something a little bit more significant attached to it. But uh, in any case, um, there are just there are many many of these um, ornamentations that have been retrieved. Um, and we also we also find more more practical things um, such as you know axe heads. Um, we even have uh, examples where things like the leather sheath have been preserved because of the properties of the bogs that they're found in. Um, we have bodies that have been preserved in bogs, known as bog bodies, that date as far back as the Bronze Age, um, and oftentimes seem to be, have been uh, the victims of sacrifice based on sort of uh, the injuries that we're able to find on still preserved on their bodies. Their bodies must be very well preserved, more than just the skeleton. Oh, yes, yes. There's, there's still flesh. There's still fingernails. Um, there's four of them, uh, again, at the National University. I'll keep harping on about what that. What have they got them in now, formaldehyde? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'm not sure what it is now, um, but uh, they have some way of keeping them preserved still. Or maybe they're just so... Um, maybe it's almost like fossil. I'm not quite sure how the process works. I'm not a, a chemist or a biologist, um, but uh, perhaps the bogs have gotten them to a point where it's more or less the equivalent fossilization. I, I, I don't really know, um, but they're they're quite. I wouldn't. You can look them up online again um, if you are interested in. But they they can be a little disturbing to look at if you're um, not up for that. So just again, kind of reflecting that idea. I almost think of. Uh, I think it's helpful to um, 
to remember this stuff by attaching it to a narrative. And so for me, it's almost like the the fear of bullying in our story at the beginning um, represent actually and and Nevid, I suppose, represent sort of Bronze Age Ireland. Um, Nevid in that story, he creates these um, forts uh, by, by enlisting um, the, the Fovra and in the Bronze Age, we get the introduction of hill forts. Um, with the exchange between the Tuatha Day and the Fyrbolig of their, their weapons, they're exchanging technology, and technology is evolving from the Neolithic into the Bronze and from the Bronze into the Iron Age. The um, Iron Age starts around 600 BCE uh, and then goes about to 400 um, of the Common Era. Uh, and after that is when we get into the, the medieval period and we start getting written text for the first time. So in, our, um, in a couple of episodes, we'll be transitioning um, to uh, evidence from sources that's not just uh, mythological and archaeological, but also that comes from um, written history. In any case, uh, the Iron Age is when the first Celtic speakers seem to arrive in Ireland but there's a lot of uncertainty around this. Where did they arrive from? That's part of where one of the, the uncertainty is from. So they could be coming from, from Britain. They could be coming from the continent. Um, certainly from somewhere to the east, because uh, that's where the land is. Um, you know, where crossing the Atlantic wasn't quite an option at this I mean, point. When you say Celtic speakers, I mean, Gaelic is derived from that Celtic language. Yeah. And, and Brehon. Yes. Um, so... We've, we've uh, actually been sort of cheating up to this point. This is supposed to be a, a podcast about um, Celtic people, but uh, the prehistoric people of Ireland uh, up until some point in the Iron Age technically weren't really Celts uh, because they did not speak a Celtic language. They did not necessarily uh, have any cultural markings that uh, match with Celtic, uh, Celtic peoples of, of the continent and of, and of Britain. We get that first bit of evidence during the Iron Age instead. But... Uh, that suggests that there may have been a population movement into Ireland, uh, bringing these these speakers. We're we're not in, entirely sure. Um, there are place names and um, population names uh, that are preserved from this time period. We do get written sources from outside of Ireland, even though we don't get written sources from inside of Ireland that prefer, preserve things like tribal names, for instance. Um, mostly from Greek and uh, Roman writers. And, and this is actually when Ireland kind of first comes onto the radar of, of the Greek and Romans is during the Iron Age. And in, in fact, uh, people might be aware um, that the Roman um, Empire at a, a certain point expanded as far as into much of Britain, um, but the Romans never actually invaded or conquered Ireland. Um, so they, they didn't make it quite this far west. But they, well, they call it Hibernia, which they is like did. land of perpetual winter, right? So. <laughs> uh, I, I, which which um, is, is fair enough to say, I think. Uh, summer is certainly a, a short affair here. Yeah, yeah. It just didn't suit them, really. The weather, yeah. they're like, nah, it's, yeah, this yeah. is too cold. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll look at um, what some, some classical writers have to say about Ireland during the Iron Age um, as well. Uh, according to, well, we'll just go in order from, there's, there's actually really very few um, and very short accounts from classical writers about Ireland. Uh, so I'll, I'll just go through a few of them, um, but you're, you're not missing much for what I don't go over. Starting with 
um, a text that uh, survives in a 4th century CE copy, but is believed to date back to the 6th century uh, BCE originally, um, is from is ascribed to uh, Avenius in the Ora Maritima. And uh, this translation is from Philip Freeman in Carey's Celtic Heroic Age. Quote, From here, it is a two-day voyage to the sacred isle, for by this name the ancients called the island. It lies rich in turf among the waves, thickly populated by the Hireni. Nearby lies the island of the Albiones. The Tartesians were accustomed to trade even to the edge of Ostromenides, the Carthaginian colonists and people around the Pillars of Hercules frequented these waters. Four months scarcely is enough for the voyage, as Himilico the Carthaginian proved by sailing there and back himself. End quote. This uh, Avinius seems to uh, not have too much bad to say about Ireland. He seems like he thinks it's very rich in resources, it's just a little far away, um, a little inconvenient to get to. Uh, but uh, we have some less uh, happy people about uh, the state of affairs in Ireland. Um, so this next account is from Strabo in his geography. Quote, The voyage from Celtica to the north is currently said to be the most extreme. By this I mean the voyage beyond Britain to Irene, a wretched place to live because of the cold, beyond which the lands are considered uninhabitable. They say that Irene separated from the Celtica by not more than 5,000 stadia. Um, so stadia is a, a measure of distance. Continuing on, there are also other smaller islands around Britain, the largest being Ierne, which lies to its north and is longer than it is wide. Concerning this island, I have nothing certain to report, except that the people living there are more savage than the Britons, being cannibals as well as gluttons. Further, they consider it honorable to eat their dead fathers and to openly have intercourse not only with unrelated women, but with their mothers and sisters as well. I say these things not having trustworthy witnesses, and yet the custom of cannibalism is said to be found among the Scythians, and because of necessity during sieges, the Celts, Ibernians, and, other, and others besides are said to have practiced it. End quote. Says, reminiscent of like Caligula. And I mean, is, is that what Rome was exporting? Just like mad sex. Yeah, it's it's certainly not uh, the most um, palatable description, is it? I, I do appreciate that he at least says, I have no trustworthy witnesses for this. Uh, so I'm just spitting hot garbage mostly. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I do like that it, it ties in a little bit with what we were talking about last episode with the uh, potential um, uh, incest at... Uh, Newgrange among the, the, the people who originally used those burial mounds uh, during the Neolithic period. Um, so perhaps there is, there is something to it. Uh, the cannibalism seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Uh, and I really like that um, he groups cannibalism with gluttony, suggesting they're just eating lots of their own people. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's quite the, um, the uh, colorful description, if, if nothing else. Um, moving on to Isidorus, uh, who was writing around 25 CE in his De Chorographia, we learn that, quote, above Britain, 
is Uverna, almost the same in area, but oblong with coasts of equal length on both sides. The climate is unfavorable for the ripening of grain, but yet it is so fertile for grass, not only abundant but sweet, that livestock eat their fill in a small part of the day. Unless they were restrained from this pasturage, they would burst from feeding too long. The inhabitants of this island are unrefined, ignorant of all the virtues more than any other people, and totally lack all sense of duty, end quote. Wow, that's very harsh. It is a little harsh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so uh, this Isadora sort of is kind of between our first two uh, descriptions. Uh, the first one was really, you know, abundant resources. And Isadora is kind of like that, at least abundant grass, so abundant for livestock. Um, but... Uh, like um, like Strabo before him, uh, not too fond of the, the people there that uh, he clearly hasn't even met. Because, um, you know, the Irish are wonderful people. Right. Well, we've refined ourselves a lot over the years. Yeah, yeah. No longer cannibals, uh, most of us anyways. Um, we'll, we'll do just a, a couple more, um, and uh, then uh, we'll, we'll move back to talking about the Iron Age folks. But again, these descriptions are from the Iron Age period, so they... They are um, a very biased window, I would say, into the Iron Age uh, uh, inhabitants of Ireland, but they're, they're something that we do have, so there may be valuable value in them, and there's certainly entertainment value, if nothing else. So uh, Tacitus, writing around uh, 98 CE in his Agricola, writes, quote, In the fifth year of the war, Agricola, crossing in the lead ship, conquered tribes unknown until the time in frequent and successful engagements. That part of Britain which faces Hibernia, he garrisoned with troops, more out of the hope more out of hope than fear. For Hibernia, lying between Britain and Spain, and placed strategically in the galaxy, would unite the most robust parts of the empire to the great advantage of both. In size, it surpasses the islands of our sea, but is narrower than Britain. As for soil, climate, and the character and lifestyle of its people, it differs little from Britain. The approaches and harbors are better known due to trade and merchants. Agricola has taken in one of their tribal kings, driven out by an internal discord, and was keeping him under the pretense of friendship for the right opportunity. I often heard him say that Hibernia could be conquered and occupied by one legion and a moderate number of auxiliaries. Moreover, it would be useful against Britain as well if Roman arms were everywhere raised high and liberty, so to speak, vanished from sight, end quote. Um, so this one's interesting uh, in that he seems to be a little bit uh, less, less uh, critical of the Irish people, um, but he actually seems to be thinking they're not militarily very strong and would be really easy to conquer if Rome just wanted to put in a tiny bit of effort. Um, and yet Rome never did anything about Ireland. I think, and then Britain did. I mean, it, it, it would be a weak point, right? I mean, if, 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 uh, if they had a base. Yeah, they, they, I, there was a, a bit in me that they wanted to bristle at uh, him describing the Irish as being no re- different, really, from the Britons. Um, I, I think lots of people in Ireland today would, would not be too happy with that description. Uh, no offense to anyone in Britain. Um, except for a large subsection of the population. Nobody who's I... <laughs> alive today, anyway. Uh, it's only your ancestors mm, at fault. Um, I'll, I'll, just, uh, I'll just keep the politics out of it, I suppose. Um, but uh, in, anywho, um, uh, there's a bit in here where he talks about um, 
knowledge of the harbors of Ireland being well known on account of trade. Uh, and we do know, again, that there was trade between Britain and Ireland at this point. Again, Britain would have been the closest sort of Roman outpost. So he seems to be implying, perhaps, that Rome was actually trading with the Irish, potentially, um, or or the British, who were in, um, occupied by Rome, were, were trading with the Irish. It's a little unclear, but that, that sort of corroborates what the archaeology tells us. Um, last little bit I'm going to read uh, is from Salinius, or, or pardon, Salinus, in about 200 CE, um, in the Collectinia Rerum Memorabilium. And uh, Salinus says, quote, Britannia is surrounded by many not insignificant islands, of which Hibernia comes closest to it in size. The latter is inhuman in the savage rituals of its inhabitants, but on the other hand is so rich in fodder that the cattle, if not removed from the fields from time to time, would happily gorge themselves to a dangerous point. On that island there are no snakes, few birds, and an unfriendly and warlike people. When the blood of killers has been drained, the victors smear it over their own faces. They treat right and wrong as the same thing. There have never been bees there, and if anyone sprinkles dust or pebbles from there among the hives, the swarms will leave the honeycombs. The sea, which lies behind the island in Britannia, is stormy and tossed during the whole year, except for a few days when it is navigable. Those who have made a trustworthy measurement of the distance of this passage say it is 120,000 paces. End quote. Um, but uh, do you think it was as savage as they describe? I mean, obviously, if you're coming from perhaps Rome, you're quite cultured. You know, you're, you're essentially going to a place that is full of savages. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think we have to take pretty much all of the classical writers writing about the Celts as writing propaganda. Um, even even uh, many decades and centuries uh, later, we have to remember that um, it is Celtic peoples who uh, in the in the past sacked Rome successfully, um, and so there's there's some I think deep generational trauma in the Roman Empire from that event, and they they pretty consistently paint, paint the Celts in a bad light from there on. Um, whether they're actually considering the Irish Celts at this point is is a little harder to say. Um, the the Romans typically don't actually use the word Celt. Um, they, they typically will say the, the Galli uh, or the Gauls, um, but uh, obviously the Irish are not Gauls. Gauls uh, would be in continental Europe and modern-day France primarily. Like Charles de Gauls. Uh, yes. Um, um, we'll, we'll have to talk more about that word Celt in the near future. Um, but uh, for now, I think the things to note here are um, there's some themes that seem to be carrying through all these these descriptions which are a land rich in sort of vegetation and and livestock feeding um a sort of indulgence um among either the cattle or the people or both um a general uh depiction of the people as being very savage and and amoral the the part that i particularly enjoyed from this is further confirmation there are no snakes but the idea that there are no bees is very interesting. And the idea that the soil of Ireland will drive bees away because there are no bees there exactly mimics that idea that we saw from that explanation of the fear bullock being the bagman because they carried around the soil of Ireland and could use it to drive away venomous animals. Um, so there's, there's, again, just these resonances that, that keep popping up, and it makes it hard to not think that there's something to them. 
the, 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 the soil emanates some kind of magic. Yeah, and um, we, we get this too in, in later uh, saga stories and so on. For example... It's, it's the first time that I've heard the soil being used in such a negative connotation because I would have always said the land, you know, and the Irish, and it leads into this fairy mythology and the, the willow trees and the oak trees... That uh, there's something positively magical about the soil here, as opposed to it being a repellent. I mean, I don't know that it is really a bad repellent, though. Like, uh, driving away venomous snakes should be a good thing for people, at least. Driving away bees is a useful thing for collecting honey. Um, So I think it's actually being depicted in a positive way in that sense. Okay. we also have, uh, just speaking of the idea of soil, we, we get in later legends. Um, I believe it's in the, the tale of um, Oshin going to, to Tirnaog when he gear, goes to essentially an, an otherworld island. Um, he spends some time with the, the hot women there uh, and then it gets a little homesick. He's like, yeah, I'd like to go home, visit Ireland. And then... Um, the the otherworld women break it to him that oh sorry honey i know it feels like a year has passed here but it's actually been 300 years over there and if you touch the soil the uh all that time's going to catch up to you and you'll age immediately and turn into dust this is like the indiana jones <laughs> kind of bit where just yeah so there's there's a negative uh irish connotation i suppose um and uh uh, anyways, uh, time seems to be uh, a, a tangent that runs through these stories. There is a huge idea uh, whenever we come into contact with the other world, not whenever, but most of the time when we come into contact with the other world, where there's some amount of distortion of time that happens. Um, so, yes, we are definitely going to return to that idea. We saw it when we looked at the um, story, uh, the extract from the wooing of Aideen with the Dogda stopping the sun in the sky for nine months. We saw it in the Dinhenicus story where um, uh, King Bressel's sister stops the sun in the sky as well. Um, this idea of distortion of time comes up again and again and again. Um, to return now to the, um, the Iron Age, I mentioned that one of the major features of that time period is the establishment of what are called, um, as kind of a blanket term, the royal sites of Ireland. And they're called this not because of the reality of their historic or prehistoric use, um, but because of how they are depicted in the legendary sources and in the sagas. Um, and there's there's essentially one per um, major province of Ireland, uh, but not the modern provinces exactly. Um, it does. Uh, there is a, a place that is associated with Ulster, for instance, and and the four modern provinces. But actually, um, in the medieval period, uh, people typically thought not of four provinces, but of five. It was Meath? Was it Meath? Yes, indeed. Meath was the fifth province. Uh, it wasn't uh, a single county. It was a, a larger area um, that bordered. Um, Really, all the four other counties just just barely bordering Munster. Uh, just a little tip, um, but uh, yeah, that was sort of considered the and Meath, um, Meath in the Old Irish uh, comes from the a word that means middle. So the the middle province, the center province, and this of course is the location of Tara um, or Tever in the Old Irish, um, which is the sort of penultimate. Um, uh, site of, of kingship 
um, and it's often paired with um, uh, Ishnach, uh, which we were having a conversation about earlier um, off of the podcast. Uh, but uh, it's a, um, a hill that's sort of considered the, the geographical center of Ireland, so it has a lot of legendary connotations with it as well and is very frequently associated with Tara. Um, so, yes, from the perspective of five provinces, Tara is the so-called royal site of Meath or Meatha. Um, and uh, then we have in Ulster, we have Novin Fort um, in the Old Irish Evinvacha. Um, in uh, Connacht, we have Cruachan um, in County Roscommon. Uh, in... Uh, Leinster, we have Dún Álainne, um, Knock Allen, I think is how you pronounce the, uh, the anglicized version, uh, located in County Kildare. Uh, and in Munster, um, in our province here, uh, but in County Tipperary, not in Cork, uh, we have Cashel, um, often called the Rock of Cashel. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, that is the only one of these royal sites that still has a building on top of it, uh, though it is not an Iron Age building by any means. It is a, a later kind of, um, I think at the middle of the medieval period, um, maybe 14th, 15th century uh, uh, church um, ruin that is atop uh, the uh, Rock of Cashel. Um, but uh, the idea of these royal sites um, harkens back to uh, what we were talking about with the taking of Nevith uh, when he had his captives dig what were called in the text to royal sites or royal forts for him. Uh, and in general, um, the layout of these sites is that there's a sort of um, a enclosure formed by an earthen ditch around a hill or a mound um, and atop that mound, there's usually some smaller um, earthen structures that remain and evidence of, of some kind of buildings of um, probably ritual significance, probably not um, residential, actually, probably not actually used by kings necessarily as a place of residence, um, though it's hard to be certain. Um, Again, they're prominent in later legend and sort of get repurposed as these places of kingship for especially the pre-Christian kings of Ireland. Um, and they're quite unique um, across Europe. There's not really anything like them in any other part of, of Europe or, or any other part of the world that I'm aware of. Nice. Yeah, so um, that being said, uh, we're going to be talking about... Um, a couple of these uh, sites going forward. Um, really, we're going to look at Evanvacha in Ulster um, because there's some really, really interesting archaeology involved there. And we're going to look at Tara as well, um, being such a site of significance for um, the mythology that we're discussing. Um, but for now, the last thing that I want to set up is uh, the reality of provinces uh, is that it wasn't as clean as there being five of them during the medieval period. Um, and uh, probably even less uh, clear cut during the uh, prehistoric period, who knows if people even thought of provinces at all at that point. Again, that's before we have any written, written sources to go off of, um, at least from within Ireland itself. Uh, so uh, in the medieval period, 
the general structure of um, society was they were built around um, small, what we might call petty kingdoms, um, or tuatha. Um, so uh, we can think of them as these, these groupings of about two to 3,000 people on average in these fairly small um, groups. Uh, but oftentimes a, a particularly uh, militarily strong king of a single tuath might uh, manage to uh, use force of arms to take control of multiple tuatha. Uh, and in that way sort of become an overking of a larger area. And that's how you get to the idea of um, sort of provincial kings, kings of larger holdings. Um, but uh, in, say, for example, uh, around the year 900, so kind of getting in from the early medieval period and towards the kind of mid-medieval period, um, we uh, have uh, something that's more like... Mm, probably about eight kind of larger areas that of, of control. And a couple of them that are geographically separate um, are, are controlled by the same dynasties. Um, so we have the Enail, for instance, clan um, are, are particularly prominent. They have sort of a chunk of, of what is modern-day Ulster. Um, they have a chunk of what is modern-day Leinster. Um, and then there's some sort of other people that are between them. We have the Ulith, uh, that, that name for the, um, the Ulstermen, uh, are kind of more peripheral uh, on the, um, the east coast of the island. They don't have all of the sort of that northern section that we now think of as Ulster, um, and, and so on. So these, these uh, provinces are still useful to talk about geography, but we do want to keep in mind that the reality of sort of the political divisions of power um, were not necessarily so clear-cut. Does it factor in that, as we were described as savages, it would be very hard for there to be a successful hierarchy <laughs> because of the, the warring nature of the Irish, as it were? Right, right. Um, yeah, so we, we have to kind of um, uh, extrapolate quite a bit to, to get back to what was going on the, in the Iron Age in terms of hierarchy. So it's hard to say really anything about that point in time um, since we don't have written sources from within the island and since the written sources we do have, which we saw extracts of, uh, are, are so kind of sparse on the details um, and, and so sort of biased uh, generally against the, the Irish inhabitants. Um, but we do know that um, after writing comes in and we start getting Irish law written down and we start getting descriptions of Irish society, it is extremely hierarchical um, and extremely structured, uh, at least in terms of what things were supposed to be illegal and what, how things were supposed to, to work. Um, and there are strong indications that that um, is a sort of culture that came from before that period of writing that came really from Iron Age Ireland uh, and then was sort of put together with um, Christianity when Christianity arrived and introduced writing. So um, I think we can go back to some extent, at least and say in the late Iron Age, tentatively, everything is tentative, but tentatively, um, we could say it's likely that there was some hierarchy. It's likely that there was 
much more order than seems to be indicated by these classical writers. All right. Um, so next time uh, we will look at uh, the some archaeological mysteries from the Iron Age. We'll look at the royal site of Evenwache in Ulster. Um, we will look at uh, a very interesting little archaeological site called the Corlea Trackway. And of course, we will look at the myths and legends associated with them. Sounds very exciting. You've laid the foundation for that. And there's <laughs> a lot more to discuss. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much, Tyler. Thank you for listening to Fabula Celtica with Tyler Baxter and Kevin Collins. Please rate and subscribe and follow us at Fabula Celtica on Twitter, Instagram, or email us at fabulaceltica at gmail.com.